All right, welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. This is episode 008, Introduction to the Iliad, Part 2. Last time we spoke, I talked a little bit about the introduction to the Iliad, but not the actual beginning of the text. I talked more about the national character of both the Trojans and the Achaeans and the fact that you can't really ascribe a national character to them yet because they are they're not yet conglomerated into the abstraction of nation-state in the same way that, say, a United States of America or a Russia or a China might be. <clears throat> Each political unity is really just a conglomeration of several smaller tribal units which have a loose power-dominance structure. For example, the reason that Odysseus is ruler over Ithaca, Neratos, Zakynthos, Dulichion, same, and the various islands in his purview is because he owns the most cattle. And as he owns the most cattle, he's capable of making the richest sacrifices, demanding the most money for trade and barter, and also <clears throat> um, summoning the most amount of men to his support. And so that is what makes for leadership. Therefore, the greatest leader of the Achaeans is he who commands the most cattle. In their, and, well, often he who commands the most cattle is he who has the most land, because he has land for cattle. And that man is Agamemnon, leader of the Argives, bringer of 100 of the 1,100 or so ships of the Achaeans to mighty Troy. And that's that's really where we should start, because Agamemnon is a, a mighty, mighty king. And though, as my students have often said, he sometimes, he sometimes lacks courage and he can be easily disheartened, he will be contrasted to the great hero on the Achaean side as well, named Achilleus, sometimes known as Achilles due to the romanization of his name. But you should know that Achilleus is how his name would have originally sounded. <clears throat> and we go back to the origin here. Achilleus is a little bit different from Agamemnon. Though wealthy and a prince, son of a king Peleus of Thea, um, he only brings 50 ships to Troy. And though Achilleus has other gifts that Agamemnon does not have, he is the most beautiful, the strongest, the fastest of the Achaeans. He is the son of a goddess named Thetis, which is a high distinction shared by some Achaeans and Trojans as well. And we'll talk about exactly what that means to be half-divine in the context of the Iliad. Achilleus has also sacked 23 surrounding cities of Troy during Achaean pirating efforts. And something you may wish to know is that... <clears throat> Given the time that this warfare occurred, um, set in about the 12th century BCE, maintaining a large army, especially with lacking the sort of infrastructure and transportation that we have these days, was a highly difficult thing to do, especially when it was differing groups of men who had di potentially differing values and spoke in slightly differing ways with each other. Um, conflict could easily arise. And so something that one needed to do with the troops is to let them pirate and plunder the surrounding cities in order to, for one, hurt the supply line to Troy. But on the other hand, also to, <clears throat> you might say, get out their baser instincts while they attempt a siege of an unsiegeable city. And Achilleus, he's been keeping these troops fed by leading them. And something... Something that is difficult to convey to a modern reader is just how much more gifted Achilleus is supposed to be than 
any other person on his side of the battle or on the other side. It's truly one-sided. Achilleus is to even the greatest Trojan, Hector, as you might say LeBron James is to a very talented high school basketball player. If you don't know sports analogies, well, I recommend that you look that one up because Achilleus is tremendous. He's never meant to be equal to any other man in any way in terms of talents, abilities, or lineage. And so, well, <clears throat> he and Agamemnon, richest man alive as far as the Achaeans are concerned, have a little bit of friction with each other. And that's where the Iliad begins. And so, if you recall from last episode, that the Iliad begins in the 10th year of the Trojan War, not the first. And you were wondering, well, why the heck is that? Well, the reason might well be this. The story doesn't begin until the 10th war, or the 10th year. Because until the 10th year, all that was expected to happen was happening. Which means that the Achaeans showed up to Troy, demanded Helen back from Paris and his father Priam. They were rebuffed, and then they engage in armed combat against a walled city, which leads to little results because they don't have engines of siege at this time, though how they will end up eventually winning the war will involve something along those lines, though not exactly what you may think. And so the Achaeans have spent most of their time defeating smaller surrounding cities in order to feed their troops and to keep their aggression at bay as they spend ten long years away from their homes. And Achilleus has been the leader the whole time, guaranteeing victory. And so this is how the story begins. <clears throat> Achilleus has recently destroyed yet another city. And in the aftermath of the carnage, he has abducted a woman and taken her as a concubine. Her name is Briseis. It's common practice at this time, and basically you might consider it like this. There were three ways for you if you were a woman after a city were sacked. You could die, which is what many women would have done. You could be a slave, work in the house, or you could be a concubine, which meant that you were essentially something like a slave wife during battle expeditions who might be taken home and integrated into the household as a slave <clears throat> after the war, which would have been the hope of many. And so, though a terrible fate by our standards being enslaved, in terms of what Briseis could have expected, this was not the worst thing that could have happened to her, though terrible things certainly have happened to her. And so her father, who was a priest of Apollo, the far-shooting, god of light, archery, athletics, music, comes to beg from Agamemnon his daughter back, brandishing not only his seal as a priest of Apollo, but also bringing ransom for his daughter. And this is common practice at the time of the Iliad, and if you read the text, you'll see it mentioned several times, including a couple times we'll talk about that are very uh, famous, largely because they're funny, later on in the text. <clears throat> but 
But to pay a price to return somebody was common practice amongst the nobles. And something, something that you will notice when you read this text is that often men would capture men of noble lineage to sell them into slavery for payment, and sometimes to sell them directly back to their home for payment. And also, often when the nobles kill men, they'll strip them of their armor. Why will they do that? Well, because armor equals honor as far as we're concerned. Here, it's Time. It's uh, the more stuff of value that you have, the more valuable or rich or wealthy you are. It's very similar to now. And you've got to have the new cool thing, except for in this case, it's usually the old, very well-made thing, which perhaps it still is in this day and age, seeing as we are talking about the Iliad, which is you know, about 3,000 years old this time, fairly old in terms of the literature we know. And so Calchas bravely approaches the Achaean camp, is granted entrance, and given an audience with Agamemnon in front of the Achaean people. Now, potentially, it's because Agamemnon is a foolish leader and that being in front of his men, he feels the need to make a show of power like a tyrant rather than a show of wisdom, perhaps thinking such a show might be seen as weakness. Even though when Calchas, or excuse me, not Calchas, but Brissus, <laughs> wow, Chrysus, as Chrysus, I apologize if I called him Calchas earlier. As Chrysus approaches Agamemnon, offers him ransom, shows him his rank as priest, and begs for his daughter back, all the men of the Achaeans shout out their approval to Agamemnon. They say, that sounds like a great idea. Do it. That's justice. That would be very wise. Also, being as the gods are very much active influences, in the Iliad, though not all humans seem to be equally aware of this, <clears throat> Agamemnon scoffs at the offer. He rebuffs Calchas, or excuse me, Chrysus. I don't know why I keep calling him Calchas. That's an Achaean prophet. And he says to him, Go away, never come back, for if you do, not even the brand of the god will save you. And so Agamemnon goes against the will of his people, insults the priest of a powerful god who happens to be the most powerful god, supporting the Trojan side. Something we'll soon talk about is that there are the pantheon of Olympic gods are divided essentially in half alongside Trojan and Achaean lines. There are three Trojan gods, or three gods in support of the Trojans, Ares, Aphrodite, and Apollo, and we'll talk about their specific reasons for showing their support there. And the gods on the Achaean side are Poseidon, Hera, and Athena, but for the first half of the text, it will mostly be Athena doing the work and Hera hatching the plots on the Achaean side. And we can talk about why that is, too, soon. So as Chrysus disconsolately walks away, having failed with his good and noble plan to get his his daughter Chryseis back, he, he does what he has recourse to. 
he prays to Apollo, and he prays that a curse be laid down upon the Achaeans for their insolence towards the light-bringing God. And so Apollo, hearing Chrysus, and this is something interesting about the Iliad, occasionally the gods will hear individuals and heed their prayers. Occasionally they will hear their prayers and they will do nothing. They will turn their heads. And occasionally the gods will even enter down into battle amongst the men in the form of men. And sometimes they'll simply guide the action of the battle, sort of like a spirit. And even sometimes they will afflict the emotions of, or the hearts of the Achaeans and the Trojans and turn the tides of battle. Mostly Zeus will be doing that sort of thing. And we'll explain why it would be Zeus, because he's the principle of order in society, one might say. Hera, of course, is Mother Nature. And then married together, well, that's where all gods and men come from. And so Chrysus prays to Apollo, and Apollo takes out his silver bow and he afflicts the Achaeans with plague. How does he do this? Well, one of the epithets that's used very rarely for Apollo and is specifically used here is Smentheus. And though not agreed on by all scholars, a, a very tentative etymolo etymological attempt at Smentheus is that it means something like rat in ancient Greek. And so, how, how is it that Apollo being referred to as rat might afflict the Achaeans with plague? Well, you might understand it like this. When Apollo uses his silver bow, is he shooting during the day or during the night? Obviously, during the night, silver the color of the moon. What happens during the night? Well, bugs and all manner of animals come, come out that aren't awake during the day, especially vermin. And so the idea might be that rats infiltrate the Achaean camp. And you might imagine that this could be because of the amount of dead flesh that's around there after 10 years of war, even though they do burn their corpses. And who knows when the last time was that they did that. We'll hear about that happening very early in the text. And so, from the rats, spread the disease, potentially, to the animals, to the cattle. The cattle are the ones, from the text, we know first to have caught the plague. And from the cattle, seen as these are heroic Achaeans in, a, in, a, in an epic tale, they eat meat in every meal. Though people at that time would have mostly eaten various seafoods, mostly things like many sorts of fruits which were more plentiful and less expensive than meat, which was so expensive that it was considered holy and a sacrifice even to eat it. And so, of course, the heroes during the Iliad, in every meal they will both drink wine and eat meat, which even to this day, I would say, is a mark of a, an esteem-worthy life, a worthy life, mmm, steak and wine. So... The Achaean animals become plagued, and thus do the Achaeans become plagued, and this is allowed to happen for seven straight days without Agamemnon addressing the issue. What does Agamemnon then do about this after seven days? Well, the answer, 
nothing. He does absolutely nothing. And so somebody has to step up. And who's going to step up? Well, who might you expect to step up? The strongest of the Achaeans and the most beautiful, and the one who thinks he is most worthy to lead because he's won the most battles and destroyed 23 cities. Yes, that is Achilleus. Achilleus steps up to the plate. Then Achilleus, though subordinate to Agamemnon in terms of the command structure of the Achaeans, he calls an assembly. This is, of course, Agamemnon's purview as war chief. And so already, subtly, Achilleus is digging in at his would-be better. And in this assembly, he summons a man, a man named Calchas, actual Calchas this time. And Calchas is a prophet. And what does a prophet do in these ancient times? He interprets reality as it is and explains the situation because they can read the prophets of old, just, uh, just like prophets of today would be, well, they can interpret reality in a symbolic way. By looking at that which happens in reality, they can understand the underlying meaning of such events, much like a sage would be at any time. And so, well, Calchas, well, first he's hesitant. He, though he understands why the Achaeans are plagued and harmed, he doesn't want to say. Why would he not want to say? Well, who do you imagine he's going to give some bad news to? Well, somebody that makes him scared. Who would make him scared? Probably a king. Which king would make him most scared? That would be the king of kings, the chieftain, Agamemnon. Calchas clearly knows the reason for the plague and knows that it's Agamemnon and knows that that will bring him no happiness because Agamemnon is king and Calchas is effectively nobody. And, well, perhaps now it's important to give you a little backstory. This is not the first time that Calchas has given Agamemnon bad news. In fact, before the Achaeans ever made it to Troy, they were stuck on the coast of a place called Aulis. And on this place, Agamemnon made one of two mistakes. Either he trespassed upon a sacred grove of Artemis, goddesses, goddess of the hunt, twin of Apollo, and, and then proceeded to shoot one of her sacred stags, and then proceeded to brag as if he had been a greater hunter than Artemis, which is a ridiculous sort of claim that is made often, not often in Greco-Roman mythology, but often enough, humans will challenge the very gods from whom they receive their gifts. Um, we'll see that with Ariadne, or excuse me, not Ariadne, but Arachne and Minerva, that's Athena, uh, a satyr named Marcius and Apollo. And I think there could be some argument made even for Niobe, too, and her 14 or 12 children. 12 children in the Iliad, 14 in the Metamorphoses and other accounts. So the other account is that Agamemnon's father, or Agamemnon, made sacrifice to all the gods except for Artemis, snubbed her. And this is something that will happen a few times in the Iliad. And that caused 
Artemis to turn from him and to deny him the winds. Now this is where the most terrible thing happened. By the accounts we have, Odysseus, or rather Calchas, is then summoned. Calchas says, only by dropping the blood of your own line will you make it to Troy. And so Agamemnon is told that he must kill, sacrifice his daughter Iphigenia, called Iphianassa in the Iliad. But how does he summon her? Well, there's Odysseus. And Odysseus we'll talk about quite a bit, especially when we get to the Odyssey. But for now, all you should know is that he is very, very cunning, very smart, very much beloved by Athena, which means that he is essentially a winner. And what does it mean for him to be a winner? It means for him to do anything that it takes to win and to use his intelligence in the service of that desire. So Odysseus came up with the idea that the Achaeans would summon Iphigenia as if she were going to be married to Achilleus before the war. And so her mother, Clytemnestra, not being any the wiser, sent her, expecting her daughter to come back, not with her husband, who was of course going to fight in the war, but married to the greatest of Achaeans. Well, she was in for quite the shock. Because when Iphigenia made it to Alice, she was let know that she would be sacrificed. Depending on the account, she either nobly accepted this or looked at her father with doleful eyes. And again, depending on the account, either she was sacrificed, which I think is likely the original account, but the slightly censored version might be that a deer replaced her, and you might understand the meaning of such a story to be how sacrifice mimics the age of civilization and the degree of civility that a people have, that we move from, say, human sacrifice at one level of civilization eventually to the more abstracted sacrifice of animals, just as we move from, uh, or so we have documented in a few of our southeastern islands, uh, cannibals moving eventually to domestic agriculture sort of cultures, not eating humans and moving on to animals, being the point there. So, Agamemnon was called upon to sacrifice his own daughter, even in order to get to Troy. And he chose to do so. And the news that was given to him, the person who told him uh, that this is how it had to be done, was Calchas. So Calchas is already on Agamemnon's bad side. And so when he speaks forth this time, well, Agamemnon's going to have even more reason to hate him. But before Calchas speaks, Achilleus redresses his doubts. He says, Calchas, no matter even if the lord of all men, Agamemnon, be the one you speak against, do you need fear any harm coming to a hair on your head. And so, this is the second dig Achilleus has made at Agamemnon. Conflict is brewing. Calchas gives his news. I have read the signs, and this 
is the situation. Agamemnon has angered Apollo, and in order to expiate his sin, in order to remove the plague from our men so that we may fight again at full strength, he must give his concubine, recently captured Chryseis, back to her father, Chrysus, priest of Apollo. At this, Agamemnon, perhaps showing his colors as a leader, flies into a rage, calls Calchas a cursed prophet, bringer only of ill news. And he essentially throws a temper tantrum. Achilleus, disgustedly looking on at this, then insists that Agamemnon get on with doing the thing that a leader ought to do in order to help his people and his troops who are all there in the service of him, in the service of his brother's wife who they are fighting to return. So, this is when Agamemnon decides that he's been pushed just a little bit too far. Being confronted with this bad news from Calchas publicly, and having Achilleus demand that he return his prize that was given to him to Chrysus, even though it will cure the plague that's afflicting the Achaeans. No, 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 no. This will not do for Agamemnon. He makes a demand. He says, if I am to give up my concubine, I will not be the one man to give up his treasure from the recently sacked city. No, 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 no. And the recently sacked city is Theba, where Etion was king and father of Andromache, Hector's wife. And Agamemnon says, no, there will be another concubine given to me and another man will go without his. Selfishly demanding what he doesn't need. And one thing you, you ought to note is this is not Agamemnon's only concubine, by the way. He, he has many concubines. In fact, later on in the text, a gift will be offered from one Achaean to another, including something on the order of 30 total women. Um seven of whom I'm fairly certain were already in the service of Agamemnon. So uh, there is no shortage of concubines at this time. However, Achilleus responds, there is no surplus of concubines. All have been given to men. None are sitting around in a pen ready to just be given to you, Agamemnon, he says. And so Agamemnon says, okay, yeah, I get it. Well, since there are no extras sitting around, I'll just take yours, Achilles. Boom! Here begins the conflict that begins the Iliad. This has been the Alexander Schmidt Podcast. Please subscribe. Please share. Please uh, respond. Please comment. And, well, I'm really loving doing these and I can't wait to talk about more. Look forward to the next episode, and we'll talk about the denouement of the original conflict, which starts the national or the first great epic of the Western civilization and the national epic of those who would become Greeks. This has been Alexander Schmidt. Have a wonderful night.